management of IBD during pregnancy, and I sort of renamed it preconception pregnancy planning because it really is sort of thinking about how do we prepare a woman uh, for pregnancy and what the expectations are, um, both in the preconception actually all the way to postpartum. So we're going to talk a little bit about factors that do impact fertility in IBD, describe the safety of IBD medications during pregnancy, management of biologics in pregnancy and some of our new small molecules, and delivery and breastfeeding. So just to set the stage as a reminder that the impact of disease activity and medications on fertility and pregnancy is really of great concern to the patients uh, and the physicians caring for them and probably represents one of the more frightening conversations just because of lack of knowledge, not because um, we're frightened of either the disease or pregnancy on their own, but the combination is something that is very anxiety-provoking for both the patient and the physicians. Um, we have, we have, we're not going to talk about sexual function, sexual health, but no one could forget that there's a very strong impact of IBD on sexual functioning. And the peak in incidence of immune diseases, particularly IBD and some of the psoriasis um, disease states uh, and lupus, um, overlaps the prime childbearing years, obviously with RA it's a little bit older, but still um, would be in patients who are in their 30s, for example. So we cannot underestimate that these diseases happen when the peak in, you know, at the time when childbearing potential is um, simultaneously in those years. So clearly, if we don't get this part together, we're going to have a hard time managing a lot of our women with immune diseases. In the IBD space, just as a reminder, to date, there's never been a prospective study assessing the impact of disease on fertility, ever. They've all been retrospective studies where we've looked at various definitions of fertility. The latest one, which I'll show you data on, is live births. Now, a lot happens between conception and actual live births to attribute to fertility, but we really don't have other surrogate ways of assessing fertility retrospectively in big data. To date, the only thing that has shown to be impacting uh, IBD is women who've undergone uh, J-pouch or what we call a restorative proctocolectomy where there's actually been pelvic dissection into the pelvis either by removing the rectum completely in those patients who've had a total proctocolectomy or in women who've undergone pelvic dissection for the creation of the J-pouch or the iliopouch anal anastomosis. As a reminder, the first stage of, of surgery, if it's a three-stage, is a subtotal colectomy or what we say an abdominal colectomy. Notice there's no discussion of the word pelvis in that, and that's the important distinction between patients who've had their first stage where their rectum is in place, they have an endoleostomy, that there's no data to suggest that that impacts fertility. But the minute that the J-pouch is created and the ileoanal connection actually occurs, that's when adhesions can occur for the fallopian tubes and uh, the ovaries. And so it really becomes a plumbing issue in those patients who've had pelvic dissection. We've actually never shown prospectively that having active disease as measured by your disease activity and how it correlates with your anti-malarian hormone, which is a marker of ovarian reserve. There are two papers published only that have shown that it's one, patient, one study shows the higher the Crohn's disease activity index, the lower the AMH level, and the other study showed there was no association. So what we're doing now is we're actually measuring AMH levels in all patients in our preconception clinic, and we're measuring them pre and post uh, therapy and measuring it, how it relates to mucosal healing. Because one of the messages we're telling moms is that any inflammation, 
may impact fertility. Um, so it's a really important conversation that we're now having about getting your disease in, under control. Um, in men, just as a reminder, sulfasalazine could cause reversible sperm abnormalities. Um, and just to remember, it's a yes-no to ask your men whether or not, if they noted, ask them if they're trying to conceive and if they're having difficulty conceiving, and then you'd want to switch them to um, another 5-ASA that doesn't have that um, that um, outcome. And also to remember, going back to the other lectures, that depression uh, for men is actually one of the biggest uh, reasons for sexual dysfunction. And so we can never underestimate, again, the impact of emotional health on outcomes for our patients. So what about surgery and fertility? So this, again, is the data that shows that in, if you look at live births as your surrogate, that overall, if you look at um, before surgery and after surgery, um, the blue is the non-IBD patients and the red is IBD before surgery for IBD and um, the green is after surgery. One of the most important messages you need to tell your patients and your women that are sitting in front of you, the number one determinant of fertility is age. I don't care if you have IBD or you don't have IBD. Once you hit 30, already your ovarian reserve starts to drop subtly and once you hit 35, that is considered, sorry women, who are 30, 35 or above, a geriatric pregnancy. So horrifying to say that. So a geriatric pregnancy for women who are 35 and above. And that's really, if you look at where the drop really happens, it's once you get above 30, uh, sorry, above 35, that even women without IBD, if you look just at the blue, there's a huge drop in uh, adjusted fertility rate. So as a reminder, when a woman sits in front of you who's 38 and had a J-pouch, please do not wait a year to determine whether this woman needs fertility management. And I would even say to you, you would start, you may want to send her right up front after the J-pouch. So we really have changed, you know, the world health definition of infertility is trying for 12 months. So that's fine if you're 25, 27, 28, but once you start hitting above 30 and you've had a J-pouch, those are the highest impact of fertility on our IBD women, if there's one thing you walk away with. And this is just a number to show you that patients, J-pouch, so you see patients in the era of when you're not using contraception, because that's a better time to assess if you're eligible to become pregnant, you could see here that the fertility rate dropped by 57% if women have undergone a pouch surgery versus women who have not undergone a pouch surgery, the infertility rate closely matches those who don't have IBD at all. So that's that abdominal colectomy that I was talking to you about. And it is not uncommon where if a woman needs a J-pouch and she is in childbearing uh, years that we would do the first surgery, have her get pregnant, and then create the J-pouch thereafter, depending on how old they are. Again. Age will be your most important factor, and then comes whether or not uh, the timing of the J-pouch. Now, the good news is, is that, good news, bad news, there's like one study that has shown that laparoscopic uh, J-pouch reduces the rate of um, infertility, meaning patients get pregnant more if they've had laparoscopic with the idea that you have diminished adhesions. We know just in general that laparoscopic surgery has better outcomes as it relates to adhesions, and so this is one study that showed that um, it may take a little longer than non-IBD patients to get pregnant, because even at 12 months you can see that there was still a 60% infertility rate, 
But then eventually over time, I don't know if this is good news, bad news, and someone who's 38 and wants to get pregnant, say by the time you're 43, there's a good chance you'll get pregnant. Obviously, it doesn't apply to patients who are already age-wise at risk for infertility. So you need to keep all of these in mind when you're counseling a woman on the timing of uh, pregnancy. So they're very simply that pregnancy alone in IVD do have a few outcomes of the baby of note that we need to take um, notice of. Intrauterine growth retardation is definitely one thing that is more commonly seen in mums with IBD than mums without IBD. We see this a little bit more with Crohn's disease than we do with ulcerative colitis because of nutrition. So the importance of the mum being very well nutritionally will also help with the baby. Preterm labor is probably one thing we see quite, quite often. Uh, actually, and preterm delivery is something that we see a little bit more in Crohn's disease. But these are pretty well, if you had to tell a mom what are the three things that have been for 20 years consistently shown as an outcome, it's preterm delivery, there's also uh, preterm labor, and intrauterine growth retardation. But guess what? All of those are tied to inflammation. So if you walk away with anything in terms of the J-pouch, and the second, second uh, important thing is inflammation impacts every phase of preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. So it's really important to remind them of why you need to be in control throughout all uh, stages of pregnancy. And we know that the more knowledge a woman has about these impact of the disease on their pregnancy outcomes, the more diligent they are and more compliant with their medication. So the drug labeling has really been the bane of our uh, sort of our existence for a long time. Uh, the category D scenario of thiopurines, I think we can all relate to the OB who stopped the patient's thiopurine and, and said, it's a category D, you cannot use that. And then you get a call that the patient is four months pregnant, had stopped their thiopurine per the OB, and is now flaring. Similar conversation happens now in the era of biologics, despite being a category B. So categories don't necessarily drive what an OB would say, meaning a general OB, not a high-risk OB. Because remember, the high-risk OB cares about the mom first, says if mom's fine, baby will be fine. General OB, baby needs to be fine, then mom will be fine. Different, different concept, and that's why I think all uh, women with IBD need to be seen even at least once by a high-risk OB and needs to be part of the team. But then there was a change in the labeling, and it was more about reproductive lactation, um, and, and uh, more about data than it was about a category based on an animal model. So what really helped us is that newer drugs that, have come, that are going to be coming to market have a different label at the way they look at pregnancy outcomes. Um, and old drugs have five years to comply based on the date of the original FDA approval. So unfortunately, until the future drugs come out, every drug that's been approved that gets a copy and paste label from other indications like rheum and psoriasis will look the same and it won't be updated as far as some of these newer guidelines and they have five years to do it. So all of our newer drugs who will be approved that are not approved in other indications will have this directly in their label. But I can even tell you this, that for tofacitinib or for Zelgans, even though it was copy-pasted from the label from RA, they've actually updated the pregnancy information to say that IBD patients have bad pregnancy outcomes already, 
and not just and already highlighted the fact that there is you need to be on attention that inflammation is bad. So they put the drug effect in context that untreated IBD is also bad. So this is the first time we've really seen a label comment that IBD untreated is also not bad, not good for for babies. So I like the fact that we're moving in the right direction. Obviously, we've got a lot of work to do with the OBs. So if I just look at congenital malformation risk in general in IBD patients, I can tell you there's never been a study to show that having IBD alone is, is associated with any congenital malformation. So we can tell a mom that congenital malformation is not what we are expecting with having IBD alone. When we look at medications, and before we get into the biologic story and some of the newer therapies, um, there has not been any risk of malformation in IBD patients with thiopurines, despite the categorization, corticosteroids, despite what some of the studies have shown um, with very higher dose steroids in the derm space in particular, with some of the cleft abnormalities that has never been replicated in IBD patients, and 5-ASAs have never been shown to be tied to congenital malformations. So I want to remind everybody that the general population risk of congenital malformations is 3 to 4 percent. And the congenital malformation rate so far with every single medication that is used either off-label or approved for IBD, except for methotrexate and thalidomide, has a congenital malformation rate of 3 to 4%. So congenital malformation is not really what we need to be focusing the patient's attention on, which unfortunately is what patients focus their attention on, and the OBs as well. We need to understand that the medications are helping with inflammation, and therefore that's where the dialogue starts, which is inflammatory control. Now remember, by the time a mom often finds out that they're pregnant, the baby is fully formed by 10 weeks. So often they're coming to you totally agonizing about their therapies, and guess what? The baby's already formed. So half the time they don't know actually what the, you know, the time frame of congenital um, anomalies are anyways, and so that's our job to kind of educate them a little bit. Now, obviously, there is a huge trend in the uptake of biologics, so this is just a graph pictorially to explain that if the secular trends of IBD use is increasing that high, and if IBD, at least 50% of them are women, that means a lot of women of childbearing potential are going to be on therapies that we are managing our patients in current day, and therefore we need to educate ourselves on how to manage these patients with these drugs. Now, what is like the big discussion? The big discussion and a lot of work goes into the timing of biologics. Why do we talk about the timing of when you give biologic therapies? A lot of it is because of the placental transfer of IgG subclass 1 immunoglobulins that happens, as you can see here. It really starts to take off as you get closer to week 30, so the sort of the third trimester on, and that increases as the baby gets to term. And so... All of our biologics follow the same as any immune globulin these babies are getting to protect them against infection. So that means that all of our biologics, except for sertolizumab, based on the, on the configuration and the pegylated measure, um, nature of the, of the product, the molecule, all other biologics, ustekinumab, vetalizumab, adalimumab, and infliximab, all will cross at the same pace. So the question is, does that impact when I give my patient my last infusion or my last injection? How do I know what's safe for these moms? So let's walk through the timing. This was a recent publication um, in AJG uh, that is um, 
from a group in Europe looking at the utilization. And what I want to show you is how women, about 81% of women, start off in the first trimester on a biologic. Then by the second trimester, that was cut down to just under 50%, and only 30% of women were still on drug in their third trimester. All right, so that graph I just showed you is probably driving a lot of the drop-off in utilization of the, um, of the TNFs um, in, in this study, was the, both adalimumab and infliximab. And there's a couple of things to remember, that there was, uh, in this study, they did show that third trimester anti-TNF exposure did increase um, the risk of small, increased risk of preterm delivery um, in, in children, in babies. And also there was slight increase in infections, actually. We had not reported that there was uh, an increased risk of infections in piano, and to this day we do not have an increased risk in piano, so in the U.S. as a European. But one thing that I want everybody to remember is that there was an increased risk of disease relapse in women who stopped their drug before the third trimester. So please remember, inflammation is bad, treat mom, baby will be well. Those are the really key messages. And so one of the things we need to balance is, is there a risk to the baby? Like I said, other than this study, there's never been a study that has shown that exposure, even in the third trimester, to biologics increases the rate of infections when you look at a large population. At the beginning, when we first looked at piano, and we had very early days, we did actually show that other than with sertilizumab, there was a slight increased rate of ear infections and nasopharyngitis. These are common you know, side, um, infections in babies. We did show a slight increase, and that was with adalimumab and infliximab, but bigger data does not show. So I would just emphasize that really it needs to be uh, that patients should not discontinue their biologic before 24 weeks as it increases the risk of disease relapse. This is the piano data showing you that actually when we looked at babies who were exposed to TNF in the third trimester versus babies that were not, um, we actually showed that there was no difference in outcome of any developmental milestone, infections, anything in, in children who were exposed in the third trimester, and that to this day still remains the case in our piano registry. I can't comment on outside of the American uh, registries. What I could tell you, what was interesting, the Canadians actually showed us that infliximab levels peak in the third trimester, and adalimumab levels decrease in the third trimester. So does that influence, should I continue adalimumab throughout the third trimester so that mom stays well and baby doesn't have preterm delivery or doesn't have issues um, with potentially me flaring during my third trimester if I stop my adalimumab? And then does it mean that I can give my infliximab a little earlier than week 30 or 32, which was the original scoop that we used to tell everybody, perfect, it's given every eight weeks, give your last one at week 32, and then perfect timing, you give your next one at week 40. Well, the data suggests now that we don't need to wait till 32 weeks. We can probably end infliximab a little bit earlier in a woman who is on Q8 week dosing, in a woman who needs it every three to four weeks, who's holding on to their pregnancy. This is not the story for that woman. That You need to gauge the fact that there's more danger in the mom being sick preterm delivery than me worrying about how much drug is in the cord blood of the baby that is born. I want to make that very clear that the priority is the mom's health. 
This was an interesting study that was published in Gastro, and they actually showed that there was a cut point at which you had lower umbilical cord levels if you gave your last infusion of infliximab at or just below week 30. And that kind of makes sense with what I just showed you that the Canadians showed that the TNF really started to rise mid-third trimester. You don't need to do it at week 32. Maybe we can go earlier. So what they did show is that if you use your last infliximab infusion just below week 30, you will get much lower cord blood levels in the babies that are born in mums who are getting infliximab. So I can tell you, I've moved away from giving it at week 32. Again, in a mom who's like on cruise control, who's doing well, who's on every eight-week therapy, I've actually moved to give her her last one at week 29, and then she gets it before she goes home after delivery in the hospital. So we've worked out with our, with our OBs that we actually hang the infliximab before they go home. Same would be for... Um, for um, the injections, we would just either bring it to the hospital or they can get it when they get home, but we give it immediately post-delivery. And if you really want to know how much of these drugs gets into the cord blood, this is our um, data looking at cord blood versus maternal serum uh, levels. And what we showed is that for infliximab, there's 2.4 times more infliximab in the cord blood of a baby born to a mom with infliximab than the mom has in her serum. So we know for a fact, don't panic, no adverse outcomes to the baby, I'm just telling you that if you give drug closer to delivery, you will have higher cord blood levels. Plain and simple, that's why the timing is relevant. With adalimumab and ustekinumab, it's about 1.4, so just barely above the baby has can look at this 40% more, but it's 1.4 ratio of adalimumab and ustekinumab in the cord blood of the baby compared to the mom. The cool thing is with vetalizumab, it was actually more in the mom than there was in the baby. So I don't know if the FC receptor or the molecule that binds to the placenta looks different. I actually don't know how it's behaving differently. Sertilizumab, obviously zero because it doesn't cross uh, in the third trimester, and tisabrier and adalizumab, which is really not um, in our space really anymore. But this is just to give you how you can communicate to the mom who's panicked. And you say, yes, 100% there's more in the baby when they're born than you. However, we've not seen an adverse outcome due to this. What I can tell you is for vetalizumab, all the, really the data we have is from the original trial, and I want you to remember that any drug that we have data on pregnancy from the clinical trial means that the mom no longer receives drug the minute they declare themselves pregnant. So we only have really the first eight, nine weeks maybe um, of data. So we do have, I think, reliable congenital malformation rate data, but I don't think we have any other reliable data because we only have about the beginning of first exposure to the drug, in every time you see a paper that shows data from the clinical trials, not real world, but clinical trials, that is a very short exposure window. So take it for what it is. So in these very small number of patients that we published on Vito, I can tell you that there was no increased congenital malformation, there was no increased miscarriage, there was no increase any adverse events, but again, limited exposure window, not throughout the whole gestation. We just presented DDW, the ustekinumab, um, and we did not show that ustekinumab exposure. Again, clinical trial, limited exposure from unity <clears throat> one and two in immunity is that there was a comparable rate of congenital anomalies or miscarriage in those moms exposed in the first um, trimester. 
Tofacitinib probably generates, and you can have a whole lecture on Tofa and what we know or what we don't know. And what I can tell you is we don't know much. All we know is that um, there is data that supports that in animals who got level drug exposure that was anywhere from 13 to or 7 to 13 times more drug that there was definitely an effect on the development of the, of the animal. Again, human data. Um, we have data both from psoriasis and RA, which does not suggest an increase in congenital malformation risk, does not suggest any increase in miscarriage or uh, any fetogenic effect. So, again, small numbers from trials. I just want to let you know so far we don't have data that suggests otherwise. We just published uh, in IBD Journal the real-world, some real-world experience across all of the um, different disease states, including IBD added to the original psoriasis and RA data for exposure to TOFA. And once again, we do not show an increased risk of congenital malformation or um, adverse events in terms of um, miscarriage. What I can tell you is people are still a bit frightened because for piano, we have not been able to enroll one woman exposed to TOFA yet. So I can tell you that despite this, people are still skittish about using TOFA in women of childbearing potential for fear of not knowing what this will do to the baby. So I feel like I'm having uh, PTSD of a lot of the drugs in terms of thiopurines would probably be the one that most closely resembles that PTSD. So stay tuned on that. This is all we got. So it's limited, but to date, good news is we have not shown anything different. One thing that I do want to say is we have looked at, con at development. We have looked at milestones, developmental milestones in babies. And the good news is, is that we have not seen a change in uh, both uh, vaccine responses, which is shown here, and on the next slide I'll show you developmental milestones, that babies respond to all killed vaccines that they're given, regardless of timing of exposure to their, um, to their drug. And so therefore, these killed vaccines are mounted response equal to what uh, babies who are not born to moms with IBD. So of course we don't say that babies exposed to biologics are smarter, but what I want you to remember to tell the moms is that Babies whose moms are inflamed during the third trimester do have an impact on cognitive and behavioral outcomes. We know that inflammation with brain plasticity and the gyri being able to actually form and smooth out in the brain are tied to inflammation. So these moms who are negotiating about coming off drug, you need to start talking about the impact of inflammation, not just on their symptoms, but on the baby and their cognitive development. So in terms of breast milk, there's lots of data to show that these molecules are barely detectable in breast milk, therefore we are telling everyone to breastfeed on these biologic therapies to not stop, even thiopurines. And there's an amazing app called LACMED, L-A-C-T-M-E-D, that I have on my phone every time a mom wants to ask me whether they can breastfeed. It talks about drug levels, it talks about all the references, and you can actually give them that information right in the clinic. And so I just want you to feel comfortable that we've not shown any adverse event of these drugs on breastfeeding. Mode of delivery, uh, very controversial. And I think it depends on the mom itself, the colorectal surgeon, the OB, the high-risk OB versus the routine regular OB who doesn't want you to have elective C-section. 
because they'd like to do vaginal deliveries. That's nice in women who have not had a J-pouch. That's nice in women who don't have draining fistulas. They can do as many vaginal deliveries as they want. But in our IBD patients, the one contraindication is a patient who has active perianal Crohn's disease. That's it. That's all we have. But what I can tell you is a woman who's had refractory fistulizing disease, who's finally in remission on a biologic or whatever medication and is well enough to get pregnant, please don't do a vaginal delivery. In a woman who has um, a J-pouch, this is where the controversy really occurs. That's very patient-dependent. We've shown that vaginal delivery with pouches can happen, but they do have a delay in recovery of their function of their pouch. And women in general with vaginal delivery with not having a pouch, you have a lot of pelvic floor issues. You need that pelvic sling for continence. And you need that sphincter to not have issues with the J-pouch. So my recommendation is, unless a woman is pushing me, in our, in our iPrep clinic, we're actually recommending um, C-sections in women who have had J-pouches. That's my personal you know, recommendation, unless, I'm, um, unless someone tells me they definitely want a vaginal. And with our Orthodox Jewish community, because on average they have anywhere from 7 to 10 children, you can't do 7 to 10 C-sections. So that also needs to come into consideration. So you need to ask how many babies do they actually plan on having before you just nonchalantly tell every woman that they need a C-section. So those are very important things. All the women in the room just went, <gasps> did a Kegel. Okay, so the risk factors for uh, perianal um, disease is, is there really an episiotomy or a tear? So what we tell moms is that if the OB is about to grab their forceps, and if they have forceps, they actually need more room. So they will do an episiotomy, and that's where problems occur is if there's a tear or if there's a spontaneous tear from non-progressive pushing, the baby's really big, the baby needs to come out, they, ran, they quickly go in and grab with forceps. What we tell the moms is that if you have time and it's not urgent, have a controlled switch from a vaginal delivery to a C-section. If it's urgent, you do what you need to do. Obviously, we don't dictate. But if there's time and you could switch to a controlled C-section, that is preferable over what we call an operative-assisted vaginal delivery, which means they're going in with uh, forceps. Thankfully, vacuums are more common now than forceps. We know that preconception care improves pregnancy outcomes, so important to start talking about it early, and we know that it improves them staying on their meds, it decreases flares, and also in, uh, increases their prenatal and decreased smoking risk. And we know that actually, believe it or not, it impacts outcomes. That low birth weight outcome was decreased in moms who were counseled appropriately preconception about the role of inflammation and the need to stay on your medication. So, sorry, I went over. It's just such a big topic. So key pregnancy planning. Decide on the timing of biologics. If the mom flares, please treat her. No live virus vaccine for the first six months in moms who are exposed to the biologics other than sertilizumab, and truly what that translates to is the rotavirus vaccine. No biggie, none of us in this room, unless you're all infants, had a rotavirus vaccine, and we all did okay. Uh, the rotavirus vaccine, all it does is it really reduces the severity of rota. It doesn't completely prevent it, but it's just less dehydration uh, for the baby. They can get their measles, mumps, rubella, and chickenpox vaccine at a year on schedule, regardless of what they got or when they got, and never switch drugs during pregnancy purely because of the placental transfer issue. 
Thank you so much for your attention.